0: Chain of events, cause and effect. We analyze what went right and what went wrong, as we discover that many outcomes can be predicted, planned for, and even prevented. I'm John Chigi, and this is Causality. Causality is part of the Engineered Network. To support our shows, including this one, head over to our Patreon page. And for other great shows, visit engineered.network today. The Hindenburg. As I see it, it is a wholly inevitable Tragedy. thing is with airships is that they seemed like such a great idea, at least in theory. Despite the tragedy on the greatest British R101 airship, it was en-, en route to India in 1930 where 48 people died out of the 54 on board when it crashed in bad weather over France, which was more people than died on the Hindenburg disaster. The US Navy lost 3 airships in the preceding decade, and at the time there was only one US Navy airship still in service. The British had given up on airships after the R101 disaster. But I think I think the reason the Hindenburg was so famous wasn't the death toll, but it was actually the media coverage of the disaster and the media coverage of the instant of the disaster was absolutely so striking that it's difficult to unsee it. The newsreels, in particular, the radio announcer, Herbert uh, Morrison's, whose famous audio-spoken uh, narrative as he watched the disaster right in, unfolding right in front of his eyes, and that's been heard millions of times since. It's been spliced together with the video footage, which isn't originally how it was delivered, of course, but that's what... People in the current our present time, that's how we view the Hindenburg is through that footage. But the thing is, at the time, there was a belief that airships were the mode of transportation of the future. They were they were huge, visually very impressive objects. They were a staggering sight to behold, enormous, and they captured people's imagination. They're the size of cruise ships, but with top speeds of about 135 kilometers an hour, or 85 miles per hour, the Hindenburg specifically, you know, it, they generally, airships, they avoided turbulence due to their size, pretty much. They were very graceful, just floating around, and they seemed pretty solid and reliable. Well, wow. up to that point. The uh, the Luftschiff Zeppelin number 129, named the Hindenburg, was constructed between 1931 and 1936 with its first flight in March of 1936. It was 245 metres long, that's 803 feet long, 41 metres in diameter, which is 135 feet, and that's at its widest point, and it could carry a combined load of approximately 100 passengers and crew. It remains today the largest airship by envelope volume ever constructed. It was the airship's first commercial passenger-scheduled flight service, that said, it had had 62 successful trial and publicity flights previously, including a round trip to Rio de Janeiro just six weeks earlier without any incidents, no major incidents. So not quite as maiden voyage as the Titanic was, but people seem to like that trope. Oh, it was their maiden voyage and it failed totally, something like that, but that's just a trope. And, and for the Hindenburg, it wasn't. It was also expensive, though, to fly the Hindenburg. It wasn't cheap. $450 U.S. at the time. That was 1937. And in today's money, that's $7,600. And that was a one-way trip. Ouch. The structure of the ship was intentionally full of holes in the support beams, periodically drilled to reduce the weight, whilst still retaining most of the physical strength. It was a fully rigid structure, with the outer and inner frames interconnected by a huge network of high-tension wires, supports, and beams. The outer skin, though, was made of a combination material of cotton and linen, and it was doped with a silver paint-light liquid that sets hard. Kind of like a paint. And the purpose of the doping on that fabric was that it reflected the sunlight and the heat, and it also sealed and protected the interior from the elements. Whilst remaining incredibly lightweight, weight of course being crucial in an airship that's solely reliant on the lifting properties of the lighter than air gas used to make it buoyant. The actual doping material that they used was a cellulose butyrate acetate, and it had much more, much more superior properties in many respects to the other dopes used at the time. Downside it was that it was flammable and was also, well. We'll get to that. Ideally, you'd be doping with something that's flame-retardant, right? But then this was the 1930s, and, well, flame-retardant materials were an emerging concept at that time. As for buoyancy, there were 16 gas bags made of a plastic film sandwiched between layers of cotton. There was a control car at the front, and the passenger car was at the middle, but more close to the rear of the airship. Now, when launching... And the airship, they would dump about six hundred kilograms of water ballast. The airship would rise gracefully, and then they would fire up the engines, and away they would go. Uh, and and the engines, there were four diesel-powered propeller engines, and they carried eighty-eight thousand liters of diesel fuel on board to power it. So that's uh, some of the information about the Hindenburg. But the, the flight where it all went wrong began on May the 3rd, 1937. The Hindenburg departed from Frankfurt in Germany and was destined for Lakehurst in New Jersey as its final destination. There's a schedule of two and a half days to make that trip. Now, that's about half what a cruise liner would take. Now, there were also 97 people on board, so that was 36 passengers and 61 crewmen. All lighters, matches, and potential ignition sources were confiscated when people boarded the airship for obvious safety reasons, so they knew that they were to take precautions. Strong headwinds, as they crossed the Atlantic, put the Hindenburg behind schedule by 12 hours. At 3pm, the Hindenburg arrived at its destination in New Jersey amid some mid-afternoon developing thunderstorm activity in the area and... uh, the clouds for which the airship had just sort of passed through. The advice from the ground station to the airship captain was to push back landing until the weather improved, the wind speed dropped back, and the storm would pass us. Complying with the order, the airship detoured for a few hours. At this point, the schedule had the Hindenburg departing at 10pm that night for the return journey to Europe. By the time they docked, offloaded, reloaded, and took off again, there was a very, very slim chance that they'd actually depart at by that 10 p.m. schedule. At 6.13 p.m., after flying through some very heavy rain on the return journey to the airfield, the airship arrived <laughs> once again, but this time intending to land. And landing an airship isn't really that dissimilar from docking a boat or a ship. You throw out a tethering line... Generally, it's a lighter duty cable of some kind or rope and then you follow that with several more. Now, for bigger boats, you usually end up with cables connecting the front and the rear and that stops the boat from drifting away. Much the same with an airship. The most crucial moment are those first few ropes or cables that go out. The Hindenburg docks first by lowering two anchor ropes from the nose of the airship and that's for the ground crew to capture and stop the airship from drifting, followed by lowering its forward mooring cable to a large tower situated on the ground. The ground crew connects the cable, and then it gets winched down. So the whole airship would get winched down to a landing level, and that's when more more cables are tethered to it to keep it in place securely. So, as per design, at 6.21pm, the two anchor ropes are dropped from the front all the way down to the ground. Four minutes later, at 6.25pm, the crew and the passengers felt a large jolt and a bang. And then, flames appeared at the top of the vertical fin at the rear of the airship. The airship's nose very slowly but flipped up into the air, but within seconds, the entire airship was on fire. There you are, with 97 people on board. 60 metres above the ground, the airship is drifting down close to the ground with every passing second, and most of it's on fire. Some of the crew members escape by kicking or punching holes through the outer skin of the airship, and some passengers survive by jumping out of the windows. And that was around when the airship was about 10 metres above the ground, before it had actually touched the ground. 34 seconds. Just 34 seconds after the first flames appeared, the Hindenburg was on the ground, completely on fire, and it's all over. Thirty-five people lost their lives: thirteen passengers, twenty-two crewmen, and well, twenty-two crewmen on board, and one ground crewman. There are many theories over the years as to what caused the disaster, and I think it's worth touching on a few of them quickly. The first one that was kicked around was sabotage because it was 1937. The Nazi Party were in power, so the investigators were concerned for the longest time that the threats of sabotage towards the airship from a growing list of enemies that the Nazi, part, Nazi Party had uh, had grown uh, were the cause of the crash. They scoured the evidence. They looked through testimonies and of the passenger and the crew backgrounds, coupled with the known facts about the crash it was pretty well ruled out as the likely cause. No one on board or related to the airship had motive, means or opportunity and no one claimed responsibility in the many, many years that followed. Another idea was the diesel fuel had leaked and that there was a fire had been ignited by electrical cables. And when I read this one, I I couldn't believe that that theory was ever kicked around in the first place because diesel is, is one of those fuels that whilst, yes, it's flammable, it requires a minimum temperature before it can ignite by any means at all. In fact, earlier airships that had used lighter engines, because diesel engines are quite heavy, to save on weight, they'd used gasoline engines, but gasoline had caused fires that had also brought down airships. So they, they said, no, we're not going to use where well, we have hydrogen. We're not, we're not going to use um, petrol, we're going to, gasoline. We're going to use diesel, even though it's heavier and we'll take a, we'll take a lift hit in so doing. Anyway, it's one of the many reasons that people use um, diesel because it's, it requires a much uh, higher minimum temperature before it can ignite by any means. And that's why it's also preferred for boats and ships as a fuel source. So without you either heating it directly via compression or through external means to 52 degrees Celsius or 126 Fahrenheit, it, just, it won't ignite. So, so that's it. That was not it. A lot of people blame the doping material because it was flammable. And uh, that somehow the doped material either caused the fire, played a or it played a big role in how fast the flames spread, because you see it burning in the in the newsreel footage. Independent tests, well after the event, showed that the rate of travel of the flames over the doped cotton linen was more than twice as long as that on the day of the incident, which is interesting. So we'll just cover the facts. Yes. Cotton burns, yes, linen burns, yes, the doping material also burns, and yes, if you put them all together, they will all burn. But no, that wasn't the cause of the accident, and has precious little impact on the rate of the destruction of the airship. It only, I mean, the only part of it, that the, the only part it played was changing the color of the, fo- of the flame uh, to an orange color because it was burning in the presence of high concentrations of hydrogen. Ordinarily, hydrogen burns with an invisible flame. So that's the only thing that that doped material actually did was it changed the color of the flame. So hydrogen. I don't know. Is it obvious that it's the cause of the, of the flame? It fueled the fire. Because it's the only thing that could have possibly spread that flame so fast on the airship. Nothing else. So the hydrogen is what burned the airship to the ground, literally to the ground. Next question though is where did the leak come from? Because how did the hydrogen get out of the gas bags? We have to go back to the steel frame construction of the Hindenburg. It was a rigid frame and the outer frame was held the outer frame and inner frames were held together with a series of three millimeter diameter piano wires. They were called support tension straps. They were also called bracing wires depending upon their utility and who you speak to, but same kind of idea. Now, maintenance logs of the Hindenburg uh, and also of other similarly designed airships, they showed that the wires were prone to snapping under extremely high stress conditions, high physical stress conditions. The stress required to do that would be the sort of thing you'd experience in high winds and if you did a sharp turn in those high wind conditions. The airframe design included four fins at the tail end of the airship. That stabilizes the airship in three dimensions. Uh, They're also the high stress points when you turn the airship, because the airship is so large. There's a large surface area that the wind passes over. So when you turn it in high crosswinds, then you're going to have a lot high, a lot of higher stress points on the actual. Um, steel frame fuselage now just prior to the landing at new jersey that day to correct for crosswinds just prior to the landing the airship made a sharp left followed by a sharp right turn to align with the landing tower there was an option to go around and go slower and take a wide arc turn which is what the instruction manual said that they probably should do but they chose not to because they'd already lost twelve hours crossing, and then another four hours or so in the afternoon because of bad weather, and they wanted to get there at ten p.m. as close to the ten p.m. departure deadline as they could. So instead, they did the sharp turns. So those manoeuvres are the far, far by far and away the most likely cause of the leak, because one of the wires during those manoeuvres clearly snapped, and the whiplash from the retraction of that high tension wire tore a hole in the gas bag adjacent to the rear fins. It was thought to be gas bag number four, although any evidence of that was well and truly destroyed. The gas escaped very quickly. And of course, hydrogen is lighter than air. That's the whole reason you need to use it for lift. So it goes straight up and it vented through the top of the airship. Now, the captain noted as they were coming in for their final approach that the tail of the airship was sagging. Now, in retrospect, that makes sense. We know this. There was lost buoyancy in the tail from the lost hydrogen, and it was most likely from gas bag number four, which was directly adjacent to those fins. The airship needs to be relatively parallel to the ground in order to be winched down safely. And he ordered, oh, sorry, the captain ordered a dump of the ballast water from the rear of the airship to compensate from the sag in the back. Less ballast. Don't need as much lift for it to to rise and be level again. In the moments just prior to the crash, observers on the ground noted that there was visible flapping of the outer skin of the airship just beside the top fin and that is a reasonably good sign of a large gas leak. So now we know where the hydrogen came from and why it was leaking. But hydrogen alone is not enough to start the fire. Where did the spark come from? Where was your ignition source? How did it start burning? It has been long known and well established at the time that airships gathered a static electrical charge as they flew through the atmosphere, and electrical storms could make this worse. There's no problem so long as the airship remains in the air and it's not touching the ground. But when it does land, this built-up charge needs to be dissipated safely. Now, at the time, the methods for doing that safely, well, they weren't really all that well established. The design of the airship simply didn't account for a safe discharge of that built-up voltage. And the truth is, it just wasn't a problem if there was nothing flammable to ignite. So, as long as the hydrogen was contained, no sparks, no arcing would have any impact. Unfortunately, this time that was not the case. As they lowered the anchor ropes at the at the as they were landing, they were either freshly wet from the rain that the airship had just flown through, or alternatively there was a brief shower of rain just after they were dropped to the ground that would have made them damp, meaning that they would be able to conduct electricity because rope ordinarily dry rope is a good insulator, but if it's wet no, so the water will conduct that electricity because it was wet that dropped the voltage of the steel frame because the ropes were connected to the steel frame. And these wires, uh, these ropes became what conductive wires. So the steel frame and, uh, it's, uh, and the piano wires, essentially dropped down to ground potential or thereabouts. Unfortunately, the doped skin of the airship, which was part which was partially conductive, and sections of the fins and there were some other electrically conductive components. They didn't conduct electricity as well as a steel structure did, since not all of the conductive components of the ship were electrically bonded together. There were parts of the airship that became a different potential to the actual steel frame, which was now grounded or close to ground voltage. Now, ensuring that everything in a structure remains at the same voltage level is something in electrical engineering we refer to that as equipotential bonding. Now, because the outer skin and several other components weren't equipotentially bonded to the steel frame, there were several small electrostatic discharges, otherwise known as sparks, throughout the entire airship. Unfortunately, one of those sparks was right next to the gas leak near the rear fin. Not good. So, it's pretty obvious at this point We know why there was a gas leak. We know where the sparks came from and why. Why, oh why, oh why, did they use hydrogen? And for the longest time, I thought they used it because they were just being cheap. Well, that's not really the whole answer. You see, the problem with airships is that you need to use a lighter than air gas to provide the lift you need to get it off the ground. And you've really only got two to choose from so long as you're on the planet Earth because our planet is predominantly a nitrogen atmosphere. So the only two gases that you can really use are hydrogen or helium. Now, hydrogen being the lighter of the two, hydrogen is very cheap to manufacture. Just run some current through the water and electrolysis later, you have hydrogen. But the downside being hydrogen is also flammable, But helium isn't. Helium is an inert gas and doesn't react with, well, pretty much anything, unless you try really, really hard. It's pretty well inert. Truth is, there were several designs proposed early on where it was going to be entirely helium bags. But there was another design that was proposed as a compromise. They would have hydrogen bags as inner bags, and they would have an outer over bag over the top of that that was actually filled with helium. And that overbag would protect the hydrogen bags inside. And you'd have a bit of both. But at the time, helium was pretty rare and very expensive. In fact, the gas at at that point in history was only available as a byproduct of mining natural gas reserves from specific locations. So not all natural gas reserves had it. And they were almost entirely located within the United States. Now... The United States in 1927 put in place the Helium Control Act. This is a whole decade beforehand. It was intended to prevent significant export of the highly sought-after gas. The ruling Nazi party at the time weren't exactly loved by the rest of the world. And whilst the German designers thought originally they could convince the United States to loosen their restrictions, that didn't happen. So they basically were out of options from the beginning they had no choice but to use hydrogen if they were ever going to get a functioning airship. The thing about the Hindenburg with respect to hydrogen, though, is that we still, so many years later, we still fear hydrogen. You know, for many years, even today as a society, we see the footage of the Hindenburg burning. It's in black and white, sure, but you know what? It's still pretty striking. And knowing it was due to hydrogen, we're reluctant to use it. Hydrogen is highly flammable. <laughs> so is gasoline, and we've been using that for a long time. Hydrogen is invisible. It burns with an invisible flame. Okay, maybe that's a little bit scary, but you know, it could be worse. Hydrogen needs to be kept under pressure if you're using it in a vehicle. So it needs to be in a pressure vessel, or if you're going to use it for like a fuel cell. You know, but then liquid patrol, liquefied petroleum gas, or LPG, Well, that's been in vehicles for years and we've been using LPG and CSG and everything and barbecues and what have you for a very long time without too many significant incidents. I don't know. I I think that I, I see that hydrogen does have a place for us in the future as part of our energy economy, but the Hindenburg set us all back a long way in trusting it as part of our energy equation as a society. So, all this is all very well and sanitary, but what did we actually learn from the Hindenburg? Ultimately, I think airships just turned out to be a bad idea. The development of the jet engine around that time and in decades after the Second World War, commercial high-speed air travel, once they got the wrinkles out with metal fatigue in the comets, which is another topic, airships were just too slow. They carried too few people. And frankly, they had too many design compromises to be a viable long-term form of travel. They were difficult and expensive to build and maintain. They had problematic docking procedures as well. Now, from an engineering standpoint, though, it's pretty clear that the hydrogen bags just needed better protection. People fail to think through the disaster without the spark, too. Had the bag fully deflated, like gas bag 4 just fully deflated, there was no spark, The Hindenburg would have had a lot of difficulty landing safely without damaging its frame. The primary form of lift was the gas, and if I had high-tension piano wires crisscrossing between the bags, I'd protect those bags with some kind of a protective mesh, like a steel mesh. But of course, if I did that, that would add weight and that would reduce your load carrying capacity, I suppose. And like I said, then you can't carry as many people and there's too many compromises. And today... Airships, they're relegated to flights of fancy. Helium's used for lift, of course, we don't trust hydrogen. And they're an expensive joyriding or advertising toy. And it's trotted out for sporting events or the like, and then it's put away again when you're done. Never really for serious use. The design of airships from that era, it just feels like a lot of engineers and designers ignoring the risks or at best downplaying them. They were truly huge, majestic, amazing machines. But ultimately, though, they were machines of extreme engineering compromises that were destined to fail. If you're enjoying Causality and want to support the show, you can. Like one of our backers, Chris Stone. He and many others are patrons of the show via Patreon. And you can find it at patreon.com slash or one word. So if you'd like to contribute something, anything at all, it's all very much appreciated. This was Causality. I'm John Chiji. Thanks so much for listening.